Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. I'm Corey Osler. I'm here with my dad, Blake Osler, as per usual. And today we have added one of my brothers, Jacob Osler. He's been reading the books too and has been interested in joining us. So we have invited him to come on for this section. If you remember, for the last two episodes, we were kind of placing Mormonism on a spectrum. So we talked about the basic classical view or Thomas tradition as well as a process theology, and you can go back to listen to those. And now we're going to be talking distinctly about the Mormon concept of God, and we did go over that a little bit in chapter 1, but today we're just going to be covering Joseph Smith in two ways, his unfolding and understandings of God through his revelations, as well as the lectures on faith, and we're going to start with that to begin. The title of this chapter is The Restoration and systematic theologies. And before we get started, I want to read a little excerpt from the book here. It says, There is no authoritative systematic development in Mormon beliefs. So again, referring back to what we just did, those are systematic beliefs, and we're saying in Mormonism, we don't have those. There is no final, once and for all, statement of the truth. The search for the truth takes place on all fronts, through reason, sense experience, and the insight associated with revelation. And the first section in this chapter is about the lectures on faith. I assume some people know basically about that, but I know a lot of people actually don't know what the lectures on faith is. So in the book you say, the lectures on faith are the first and foremost systematic statement of Mormon beliefs. All right, interesting. Let's just give some history. So the Doctrine and Covenants is a book that we're familiar with, But the doctrine part was actually taken out of it in, when, 1925? Is that when that came out? 21. Okay, so that was the actual doctrine of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it was later removed. So, Dad, would you give us a brief history of what the Lectures on Faith are, and maybe why they're removed? Sure. There was a a preface statement, as a matter of fact, to uh, the Lectures on Faith, which expresses that it was essentially a committee kind of a publication. Those that worked on it in, included, without doubt, uh, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Parley Pratt, and, and probably other scribes. Joseph Smith was responsible for overseeing it. There's been a good deal of discussion about who really wrote what. There's an excellent, excellent article that was published in 1990 by the Religious Studies Center at BYU by Larry Dahl entitled Authorship and History of the Lectures on Faith where he looks at the entire history and the authorship. And uh, it's fairly clear that Sidney Rigdon was more responsible for Lectures 1 and 7. Joseph Smith had primary responsibility for 2 and 5. There's a mix of, of other authors. But what you get is a statement where the leaders of the church publish in the Doctrine and Covenants in the first edition in 1835 a statement saying that these represent our beliefs, and we trust also of those that essentially belong to the church. And what they were doing was stating as clearly as they could their basic theological doctrine. And the lectures on faith were authoritative. Were they seen as scripture, per se? 
it, it's hard to know because there was no definition of scripture, but they were put in with the revelations of Joseph Smith on equal standing. And so we have this authoritative statement. I'll make a surprising statement as well in my subsequent research. Lecture 5, which is the one on the Godhead has caused the most problem, was the one that Joseph Smith was primarily responsible for penning. The non-contextual words, there have been a couple of studies of master's thesis and a word print study by Wrencher and Larson, which show that it has Joseph Smith's word print, and it is primarily a summary of Mosiah 14 through 16 and DNC 93 taking the views that are expressed there and working them into an understanding of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I think it would have to be admitted that the Holy Ghost is seen as the shared mind of the Father and the Son, but has some kind of independence as a, as a divine person as well in the fifth lecture. Well, are you, sorry, I'm just assuming people aren't familiar with it. In the fifth lecture, it is a little confusing because it refers to specifically the Father it says he is spirit, whereas it says the son has a body of corporeal nature, and then it says the spirit, rather than another personage, is the mind of God between the two of them, and that's where some people get confused. Anyway, go on. You know, it's it's really reflecting almost exactly the language of Mosiah 15 and of DNC 93, those two revelations where the same kind of a distinction is made. And really what the lectures on faith, they're overall organizing principle would be the relationship of Father and the Son and Holy Ghost as the primary relationship on which we should base our relationships here and now in this world, and the challenge for us to be invited and accepted into that relationship to share everything that they have and are. And so that's expressed very clearly. It is reflected not merely in the theology, but in the praxis. Praxis means what people do. Remember, at this time, they were forming the essentially the companies of United Order in the Order of Zion, and what they were doing was creating everything in common. And they believed that to reflect the relationship of the Godhead, they had to reflect in their everyday economic transactions that kind of unity, so that everyone in the world, at least those that are part of the covenant community that have entered into covenant to relate to each other this way, they have everything in common so that they have the kind of unity in their relationships so that everybody is a member of the family. Everybody's treated as if though they were a son or a daughter being taken care of by parents. And so the only reason for people to work for anything over and above what they absolutely needed for themselves because it got contributed to the bishop's storehouse was love for others. You know, if the Lectures on Faith is a theological system that reflects that time period and that emphasis on unity and the recognition that this relationship is the highest and greatest good that can be realized by human beings, and the most amazing thing of all is that we have been invited into this relationship to share everything that is inherent in being in the relationship. And so I see the Lectures on Faith as a very profound statement of theology a very profound statement of the beliefs of the earliest church leaders with their best attempt to state as clearly as they could their theological assumptions and basis. And you have to remember people like Sidney Rigdon and Parley Pratt. Parley Pratt was a preacher. He had some religious training. Sidney Rigdon was a preacher. He was better educated. And so they had some education in classical Christian theology 
And so they wrote in, in the way that they had been trained. And I have a great deal of respect for the lectures on faith. I'm not advocating that we should regard them as scripture, but I am advocating that we should read them and, and get great benefit out of these lectures. And what people take to be confusing, is specifically in Lecture 5, is a straightforward statement of the understanding of the Godhead as it had been revealed to that time and reflected in both the Book of Mormon and the Book of Commandments um, in what we now have as DNC 93. So. All right, that's a good summation. Um, so just to clarify for people, so though Joseph Smith may not be the primary author, he definitely sanctioned them and approved their use as they were obviously put in, and they were actually originally taught to prospective missionaries that were going to be going out. Jacob had a question about their removal, and if you wanted to ask that question, Jacob. Yeah, um, real quick, just uh, with the understanding that it, the lectures on faith were the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. In the 1921 edition, we essentially removed the doctrine. And the explanation was that the lectures were never presented nor accepted by the Church as being otherwise than theological lectures or lessons. But in 1835, when they were part of the Doctrine and Covenants, that they, they were presented before the Brethren and accepted. And so, what are your thoughts there? Obviously, this was a big part of our doctrine for a while. Why in 1921 did we say, well, there's a different understanding now? Why remove the doctrine from the Doctrine and Covenants and be left with just the Covenants? I believe they were removed primarily because the notion of the Godhead that's expressed in the Lectures on Faith is incomplete in light of later revelations received by Joseph Smith. They had a new edition with, with new chapter headings and new chapter breaks in some cases, and, and they went through and cleaned up some of the spelling and, and grammar in 1921 as well. The decision was made that they didn't fully reflect the fuller understanding, and they were confusing for that reason. We'd have to look at the journals of the people that were involved, and Larry Dahl goes through that in his article as well, The Authorship and History of Lectures on Faith, published in 1990 in a book entitled the Lectures on Faith in Historical Perspective, which would be a good place to go to get a better feel for that. Um, he treats it quite well, in my opinion. Excellent. Moving on here, another quote from the book that I thought was important to point out here, as, again, we've been talking about systematic theologies, and if you'll remember, in like Thomas Aquinas' thought, he's trying to prove the existence of God because all things have been caused. Let me just read this. It says, The unifying principle of the lectures is not a metaphysical postulate, such as Aquinas' principle that all things must be caused. Rather, the focus is simply the requirements that rationally allow persons to stand in a faithful relationship of salvation with God. There are no logical postulates or rules, but merely the character a being must have to inspire faithful trust without reservation. And like you said, the focus is on interpersonal relationship with God that leads to salvation. So let's dive into what they, I mean, I, we know an overview of what they contain, but they're called the Lectures on Faith. And you say, at the commencement, faith is defined as the first great principle, being the source of all action in an intelligent beings and the source of all power to action. So they're kind of using faith as we use it now, but they change its meaning to a power in a way. Yeah, let's back up. The Lectures first reject proofs of God's existence. Rather, they assume God's existence. They, they depart from this postulate. The one believes in God either because of one's tradition in which one grows up or from personal experience with God. And other than personal revelation of that nature, there is no real valid reason to believe in God. So the lectures begin 
And I don't believe it's just an assumption. I think it's a conclusion. The logical proofs of God's existence are not very persuasive, and we're not going to rely on them. And so when we talk about how we explain the universe, the universe immediately begins already as a society. The moving principle behind everything is not God. It's the faith that things have in God. So, and this is an interesting fact that most people overlook. Joseph Smith was very explicit about rejecting creation ex nihilo, most in Nauvoo, beginning in 1840, when he began to explicitly reject the doctrine. But the lectures on faith already implicitly reject the doctrine. The lectures state that creation took place because everything had faith in God, and so when he spoke, it organized itself to be the way he spoke it to be. And the lectures even explain why God does things. God does things because he has faith in himself. And so what we're, we're looking at is a personal explanation rather than a metaphysical explanation. Personal explanations in philosophy are those types that refer to the motives, reasons, and other considerations that persons have for undertaking action. And the lectures on faith have a personal explanation for all existence. And the personal explanation, interestingly enough, begins with God in a sense, but begins even with something more fundamental, the faith that other things have in God. But even God himself moves because he has faith in himself because he is the ultimate trustworthy one that everything can trust in the universe. And so you can say that's a metaphysical postulate, but it's really a personal explanation as I've explained it. I think Jacob also had a question about God having faith in himself. It seems to go along with what uh, Royal Skousen has, has put forth, and God having faith in himself and other things having faith in God, him being the most trustworthy, and, and that's why things are obedient to him. And Royal Skousen, I believe, goes so far as to talk about even elements like of rocks and things. That's why a rock stays a rock, because it knows that it's trusting God completely and that that's what it's supposed to be. Uh, are you, you suggesting more uh, a Royal Skousen type view on that, or what are your thoughts? Well, clearly we would have to distinguish between some kind of a conscious choice, a conscious decision to have faith in God and to follow God, because rocks don't have that kind of consciousness, and a more basic level kind of a trust. The lecturers say that you know, God spoke, the elements heard, and, and they obeyed. <laughs> and so it's assuming that the basic elements of the universe have the ability to exercise faith in some sense. Here, obviously, we're speaking in an equivocal sense. The way in which humans have faith is one that includes human consciousness. It would be hard to say of a corpse that it has faith in doing anything because it doesn't do anything. But a sleeping person really doesn't exercise much faith either in the way that we usually speak of faith. Um, it, it's something that we do because we make a conscious choice to trust. And trust is a particularly human activity. I mean, it's really strange to say of rocks that they trust, because usually when we speak of trust in this nature, trust is something that's a free choice. And I don't believe rocks have free choice, and I don't know anybody who actually does. But in a more basic elemental sense, if one wants to say there was kind of an anticipation here of the notions of process theism, where the most basic elements of reality exercise some amount of creativity in embodying God's will. And what I think the lectures on faith assume is that when God spoke, they were essentially bound by you know whatever level we're talking about in faith. But I want to emphasize that it, the way we're talking about faith is, is equivocal. And equivocation means there are different meanings that we're using. And we would have to unpack that to get clear on what we're talking about. 
But I think it is remarkable that the lectures appear to anticipate a type of process theistic approach to the way creation takes place and the reason that things happen. Good, good. Just a couple more excerpts then. I like in the book, it says, Faith in this way is thus kind of like the first cause in a sense, for it is the principle of movement and action in the universe, rather than things being caused just by God without explanation. Like, God doesn't act just to act, but it's why God acts and how God acts that's explained here, which I think is more powerful. This is actually a quote from the Lectures on Faith. It says, Faith, then, is the first great governing principle which has power, dominion, and authority over all things. By it they exist. By it they are upheld. By it they are changed. Or by it they remain agreeably to the will of God. Without it there is no power, and without power there could be no creation, nor existence. And that's what we just talked about. So that's just a quote from the Lectures on Faith. Okay, you also mentioned the Lectures on Faith reject all natural theology. And I guess we've kind of gone over that, but the idea that the only way that anyone can know about God is through revelation. And they painstakingly in the Lectures on Faith go through to show how people know about God because Adam lived for so many years and influenced people because he directly contacted God. So the Lectures on Faith seem to be saying that if someone has seen God and conveyed the message firsthand, that should be sufficient for everyone else. But I'm just wondering how that can apply today, where I'm not sure people are saying that they've seen God, and I don't know the last living person in our church that is saying that. I know I, people assume that the prophets and apostles have. Well, the lectures actually put forth two, two bases for belief in God. One is tradition, and his, that's what you're talking about. The lectures on faith go through at length, explaining how the notion of God came about by a tradition, in particular the Christian tradition as presented in the Bible. And it assumes the truth of the biblical stories. For those who accept evolution and have a more modern worldview in terms of just about every basic science we can think of, like paleontology, geology, you know, if, if we want to think about those types of things, explaining Adam's place in the creation, whether the story of Adam and Eve is merely figurative, whether there's some historical truth, would have to be addressed. But the lectures on faith actually assert that one's own experience with God would also be a sufficient basis. And it's somewhat curious that the lectures assume that everybody's aware of how to have experiences with God for themselves, you know, in addition. So there are these two bases, and it really goes explicitly in an entire lecture into the history of the tradition to show how the notion of God came about, but it is pretty short on an epistemology of religious experience. As far as has anybody seen God, you know, how do we, if nobody's seen God recently, Hugh Nibley had a book, The World and the Prophets, in which he asked this question, how will it be when no one exists who can say, I saw? And I think what you're suggesting is we live in such a world, and what I want to suggest is there may well be all kinds of people who have seen, but they have the sense to remain quiet about it. Doesn't that yeah. negate the point of what the lectures are trying to say? Because it's saying that, at least for the tradition as well as revelation, well, I guess I'm confused. As when it says you can only know about God through revelation, it seems they're not referring to personal revelation. They're referring to pretty much revelation through Joseph Smith at this time, I would imagine. I don't think so. You've got to remember the Doctrine and Covenants was published. Just about everybody involved with them had had a vision of God. I mean, if you look at the people involved in the production, Sidney Rigdon had had a vision with Joseph Smith of God. Oliver Cowdery had a vision uh, with Joseph Smith of God. I mean, for, for Joseph Smith, and I'm, I'm just going to make this observation, and, and if one reads 
DNC 84 and 88, Joseph Smith just kind of had this naive belief that anybody who really had faith was going to have a vision of God. And I, I think that's kind of assumed in the lectures on faith. The whole point of the comforter was that one was going to have a personal visitation and knowledge of God, and it's an explanation how to do it. And so, you know, for him, a world in which people had immediate visions of God, you know, that was a very common theme. It was not just the prophet, and it was never expected that it would just be him. And so the the real question is if there are those if there's no one who can say I saw now I would turn it on its head and say not what does that say about the lectures on faith but what does that say about us? Mm-hmm. Well, good question. All right, next I just want to go into the other parts of the lectures on faith explained. So the reason at least I see what they're included here is again remember we're talking about this book the attributes of God that. And the lectures on faith purport to explain the attributes of God, which they give an explanation. In the book, he said, the lectures give priority to God's character, and that knowing his character is related to, I don't know, you compared to like immutability and stuff like that. Can we explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the lectures, for instance, say that God is unchangeable, and we have to believe that God is unchangeable in order to be able to trust him. The lectures, though, are very clear. They're not talking about God in classic terms of immutability. That mean, That's another word for being unchangeable. It's not that none of his intrinsic properties can change in the sense that he's timeless. What it means is you have to believe that when God gives his word, his word is steadfast and unchangeable. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. If he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. If he says you're going to be treated justly, you can trust him to treat you justly. If he says he will exercise mercy, you can trust him to exercise mercy. What the lectures are saying is, I mean, just think of what what does it require for you to trust another person? And the lectures are saying in order to trust another person, they have to be unchangeable in certain respects. You have to be able to rely on them. It can't be the case that they say, yeah, I'll show up, and then they never show up. (laughs) That's not a trustworthy person. And so it's just kind of reflecting the nature of interpersonal relationships and trust in interpersonal relationships. And and the lectures assume that the word trust is a synonym for the word faith. And in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, the word for faith is also the word for trust. And so we have these two concepts, and, and we can say we have faith in God, but at bottom, having faith in God is trusting God. And I think the lectures adequately recognize that. All right. I've been thinking about this, and I like the idea. It's just that God is such a, you know, we, you talk about developing your character and things like that, and this is saying God's character is such that he is so trustworthy, he is so dependable, he's so steadfast in his character that you can put your faith in him, you can trust him. And so if there's justice and it's God's justice, you know that that is the correct justice, not just because God said it was good, it's just because God is a just person and he's trustworthy and so you can trust that he's doing what is just and and he's loving if you're going to be judged somebody being judged by somebody who's both merciful and loving is a pretty good way to go let me make another observation because the lectures kind of assume this they actually state this but the notion is that god is essentially looking for a way to share with us everything that he has all of his power all of his knowledge and in order for him to do that he has to trust us I mean, let's assume that you have a nuclear bomb. Who are you going to give that to? Only somebody you trust ultimately. You're not going to share a lot of power with somebody unless you believe they're going to correctly use it. You're not going to give all kinds of knowledge to somebody, all kinds of 
data that they can use unless you really trust them. And God is saying, I'm going to, I'm going to share all the power and all the knowledge with you. And so he's got to be able to trust that we will work in unity with him, that we will love others the way that he does, that we will agree with him on what is good. And it's that kind of unity of mind that the lectures are asking us to exhibit so that God can trust us as well as we trust him. Just an observation. And just because this is going to come up later, I wanted to give another quote, and I don't want to go into it too much right now. I just want to point something out. So there's another quote from the Lectures on Faith that says, they switch from the character of God to the next lecture is the attributes of God. And it says, an acquaintance with these attributes in the divine character is essentially necessary in order that the faith of any rational being can center in him for life and salvation. For if he did not, in the first instance, believe him to be God, that is, the creator and upholder of all things, he could not center his faith in him for life and salvation. For fear there should be a greater than he, who would thwart all his plans, and he, like the gods of the heathens, would be unable to fulfill his promises. Obviously, since the first part's self-explanatory, I just wanted to see if we could explain why is he pointing out that there, I don't know, it seems to, we'll talk about it later again, but it seems to run into some dissonance that there can't be any necessarily greater than he. Is he just mean we can't have someone that would thwart his plans? Because Joseph Smith later teaches that intelligences are also co-eternal with God and can't necessarily be fully controlled by him in that because they have free will. And we can definitely thwart his plans if his plan is for us to be good and that we don't be good. Are we then meeting this criteria? But his, his plan isn't for everyone to be saved. His plan is for everyone to be saved who chooses to be saved. And when the lectures on faith use salvation, they really mean what is referred to in section 76 as exaltation, sharing everything that God is and has. It's deification. And so when the lectures on faith are speaking this way, just think about it for a moment. If God gives his word that he will save you, what he's saying, and the word salvation actually means this, he's going to deliver you from things that it's impossible to be delivered from if one relies upon the course of natural realities or the power of human beings or the best, even the greatest power we know. Nobody has ever resuscitated a person who died on a Roman cross and who was buried for three days. No one can bring back from the real dead another person. I mean, there, there are miracles that we can record, but the reality is, I mean, there are miracles in Mormon history, I, I suspect in other histories as well, where people genuinely were regarded as dead in every respect, and they were brought back through prayer and fasting. The story of Lazarus is another one of these stories. The bottom line is, God has to be able to deliver us from death. He has to be able to deliver us from the clutches of hell. If we are in the depth of despair and hell, he has to be able to deliver us from whatever's keeping us in this hell. And ultimately, if there's something that will destroy us, God has to have sufficient power to overcome it. So the lectures on faith, even though I don't believe they say this explicitly, implicitly adopt a view that God must be the greatest actual power in the universe, in the actual universe, at the very least. God must be able to compensate for the power of everything else that may seek our destruction. And so God has to have that kind of power in order for us to have faith in him. Otherwise, we couldn't really trust him. In the modern world, we say, well, boy, that's a pretty tall order, because what kind of power does it take? The universe is either going to die in a heat death, a whimper, where everything just kind of peters out and all energy is gone and everything is in absolute entropy, that is, maximum entropy, where there's no energy left in anything, or it will collapse on itself in a big crunch, 
And God has to be able to deliver us from either one of those inevitable results in the natural universe. And I guess you could say, well, who cares? That's trillions of years away. I'm not worried about it. I've got enough time to live. You know, when you're 25, you don't think about these things. When you're 85, you do think about these things. And, you know, the reality of mortality seems a lot more real. (laughs) Well, the moment when we will be in existence and the universe will be facing its demise is just as real as this moment now. And God has to be able to deliver us from that kind of a challenge in order to be trustworthy, as the lectures asserted. So it seems to be laying down a very rational view of what kind of power God must have in order for us to exercise faith in him and to be the kind of being that we would worship and have faith in. All right, and then the last little thing I want to talk about here before we move on to the next section is the attributes of God arise in virtue of the relationship of unity enjoyed by the individual divine persons only when united as one in the Godhead. At least as far as the revelations had been revealed at this time, can you explain kind of what they meant when they say that? Yeah, and I don't think that they've really changed. The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are so intimate with each other that they live their lives in each other. They interpenetrate each other. They have their light in common, all of their thoughts in common, all of their purposes in common. They actually know each other's thoughts intimately and what one thinks the others think, what one does the others do. And so they have this kind of perfect unity, if you will, that arises from their perfect love and trust in each other. And they're seeking for us to have that kind of relationship with each other and with them. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, because the only way that's possible is ultimate love, where we love each other so thoroughly that we will let down all barriers and and let others totally share in our lives. It's invasive unless we invite somebody to share those kind of things with us. We have to ask ourselves, is there another person on earth that I would be willing to let into my own personal private subjectivity in my thoughts? But there's no way to escape God. (laughs) I mean, the, the assumption is he knows all our thoughts. And so God is asking us to be with one another the way that we believe he is with us. No barriers, no walls, no secrets, no hiding, which I will just make an observation. Hiding was the ultimate sin. It's what Adam and Eve did. They tried to hide from God. That was the first thing a human does in order to become immortal. We hide from each other. I'll express my belief. I don't think the spirits can really do that with each other. I think they communicate mind to mind, if you will. And so... In mortality, we have something that is very unique. We have the ability to hide. We have the ability to be dishonest. We have the ability to feign. We have the ability to pretend to be something we're not. And that at base is the problem. Before we move on, any other thoughts or questions about Lectures on Faith? I did have a question real quick. Uh, Just the way you described the relationship between the Father and Son, the Holy Ghost, and that they're penetrating, that they know each other's thoughts ultimately. Do you think that exact thing was happening during the Savior's mortal experience? Uh, when he was a child, was he still exactly in tune with the Father? Or are we to understand in the scriptures that he grew from grace to grace as well, that there was a time where maybe he wasn't that developer? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, really, to get into this, we'll get into a theory of Christology in the very last chapter of this book, 
And then when we discuss the compassion theory of atonement that I develop in the second volume, we'll be able to discuss it more fully. And I don't think we have the background yet to responsibly discuss an answer to that question. I hate to beg off, but in order to discuss responsibly a topic, we have to develop an understanding of the terms being used, the assumptions underlying our discussion, and the possibilities for responding so that we don't misunderstand each other and so that we can have a responsible discussion. In fact, one of the purposes of writing this book was so at the end of the book could have that discussion responsibly by developing the rest of the chapters and then getting to a notion of Christology. Here's how the progression goes. I have a theory of Christology in the first volume. That then gets expanded into the compassion theory of atonement in the second volume, and then into a full-blown theory of theosis and deification in the third volume. And so all of that discussion is necessary to responsibly discuss deification and how we share fully as one with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that takes place in the third volume. And so there's a lot of groundwork to be laid before I feel like I really can responsibly discuss that. Question for another time, then. (laughs) Yeah, Only a philosopher would do anything like that. But really, I think people discuss matters irresponsibly all the time. It leads to confusion. And not only does it lead to confusion, it leads to really bad philosophy. With that, let's move into the next section here, and it's titled Joseph Smith and the Foundational Scriptures. And so where the lectures on faith were a doctrinal statement at one point, this section kind of talks about the evolution or the understanding of God that Joseph Smith had through his revelations as time went on. And in the beginning of this section, you say, you know, from the first quotes, and even in the Book of Mormon to a point, it seems that Joseph Smith had very much, as one would expect, an understanding of God, probably like the Methodist that he wanted to join, or not unlike a lot of other traditional Christians of the time. But as time went on, that changed. And so one of the concepts, seems like this understanding kind of all got sparked when the verses on light and imminence seemed to be the beginnings of a lot of the unique revelations and teachings of Joseph Smith. Let me back up, because that's not entirely true. Already in the Book of Mormon, we have suggestions of a very radically different view of God, because we have the Savior in Ether 3 appearing and saying that essentially we are in the anthropomorphic form of his spirit body. From the very beginning, God was very anthropomorphic for Joseph Smith. And I would say that was largely because of the translation of the Book of Mormon, where he learned that. And so... I could show you there are discussions of light as well. There are discussions in the Book of Mormon that are preparatory to the later discussions, but they're only there to be, you know, I think we only recognize them because we have the further development. Well, okay, let's, let's say that that's in the Book of Mormon, but do you think Joseph Smith would have necessarily believed that at that time? No, I think that's a good question. I think You then get DNC 50, where he talks about growing in the light until the perfect day, meaning a day when human beings will share in the full knowledge of God, meaning we will be omniscient. I mean, I think a watershed moment for Joseph Smith, one that just opened up all kinds of vistas for him to contemplate, was the vision in DNC 76. I think it kind of took him by surprise and took his breath away. Literally, I think it knocked him to the ground. Well, and not Sidney Rigdon to the ground. I guess Joseph Smith took it a little bit better. But (laughs) DNC 76 already begins to say that we are quickened by that degree of glory that is defined by the law that we live in this life. 
and that the light proceeds from God, and that the reward that we will enjoy in the judgment is defined by the light, which is a natural law. It follows naturally almost as to how we actually comported our lives. And those who have done everything to follow Christ and been valiant in the testimony of Christ will share fully to be, and, and this is what DNC 76 quotes, it quotes Psalm 82 to say, we will be gods. So already in 1832, you've, well, I could show you the Book of Mormon where it says that we're going to be just as Jesus is, we're going to be fully divine, says it in several places. But in DNC 76, the notion that that we can participate fully in this light is revealed. And then we get, in 1833, the revelation of DNC 88, which is another watershed, which is explaining that the divine light proceeds from God's presence to fill the immensity of space and constitutes the law by which all things are governed. And so God's light is the basis of order. It is not only the basis of order in the universe, it is necessary for our very consciousness and awareness. And our very understanding is quickened. Quickened was a term in Old English, meaning the moment that the fetus took its first breath and, you know, became a living being. We were quickened by that. So what Joseph Smith's revelations, it became a, a theology, if you will, of divine light and being quickened given divine life. So that God sheds as a grace upon all things his divine light. And to the extent we willingly accept what he gives to us as a sheer gift, we share in his life, intelligence, power, spirit, and light. These are all words used interchangeably. And so God essentially is giving his very being to reside within us. He uses the language of the Gospel of John. He's going to take up a boat and live in us. And so the notion is one of co-shared life, co-shared knowledge, co-shared divine power. And so Joseph Smith develops this theology of divine light. And not only does the light proceed forth from God's presence, there's a light of Christ that's in all things that essentially co-does the same things that the light of God does. And we have our own light, if you will. There then becomes this metaphor of light and darkness. And when we don't exercise faith, when we don't accept God, we reject the light and we dwell in darkness. And so there is this amazing theology, in my opinion, that holds together and is consonant with the lectures on faith because they share in this notion of co-shared life that indwells in us. And it is by sharing the light of God. And the, and the light is another word for the spirit or the life of God. And the notion in Christianity in the New Testament, there's this Greek term zoe, Z-O-E, if you will, zoe. The zoe is something that is a special notion of life. It is that a Christian is one in whom the life of Christ resides. And what makes us a Christian is that Christ has taken up a mode to live within us so that his light shines through us. And we are Christians because we live a co-shared life with God. It is also the notion of theosis. In Protestant terms, we would say the moment of justification, the moment we open to accept Christ, he justifies us to say, okay, I'm accepting you into a relationship. And from that moment on, we begin what's known as a process of sanctification. This process of sanctification takes not merely a lifetime, it takes an eternity. And we grow in the light forever, just as God grows in the light forever. And so it's also a notion of eternal progression. That's just kind of an overview. Obviously, I could go on for hours about that. I could get into specific scriptures, but that's the overview. Right. I wanted to walk through the little snippets that he was given, kind of how 
his idea of God and intelligence developed. And so in the chapter, at least, you start with this idea of imminence. And like you said, it's the idea of light and this light from God being in all things. And as the scriptures say, the light which proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. If we recall from our past discussions of imminence, this is kind of the idea of God being present, I guess, or acting in all things in a way. Yeah, it's a notion of omnipresence. That's right. You also talk about divine concurring power. What What is this divine concurring power? Concurrence is a notion that was developed in medieval theology. I'll give an example. When a lion leaps on the back of a deer, the energy that it uses to leap on the back of the deer is derived from already eating the meat of other animals. And the energy came from that meat. But the energy was in the meat because the animals ate the grass and the plants that they ate. And so the energy that is in the lion ultimately derived from the grass, but the grass derived its energy from the sun through photosynthesis. And so the power that the lion uses to jump on the back of the deer ultimately derives from the sun. In this sense, this is what we would call a general concurrence. God's power is necessary as a general concurrence. His light in all things is necessary as a general concurrence for there to be life at all. It is necessary for there to be law and order at all. So all things that act, act because of God's general concurring power, because all power ultimately derives from God. This according to Joseph Smith, I'm just saying. There's also what's known as a specific concurrence. And this is a a more developed theology, and I don't believe that Joseph Smith had a notion of specific concurrence. But the notion of specific concurrence is, I'm about to hit a guy over the head and rob his wallet, and God intervenes to deprive me of the power to do so. There's a specific action of acting to not concurrently share his general concurring power with me. So he could also specifically concur in something that I do. If we had a a more deterministic theology like Calvin or the Molinists, which we'll get into later, we can say that when God created the universe, he gave a specific concurring power for everything to occur that he wanted to occur. And he withheld the power, if you're a Molinist, from those things he didn't want to happen, and they would just happen naturally without his specific concurrence, but they would require his general concurrence. So this can get very complicated, but for Mormons, all we really need is the notion of a general concurrence. All the power ultimately derives from God. This idea, as you talked about, the the light or the law or this intelligence, this ever-penetrating thing that however God's power is or God's imminence, how he fills the immensity of space— you say in an 1833 revelation, it develops further into, I'll just read it, it says, intelligence or light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also, otherwise there is no existence. And so this is a little bit further development of saying not only is this light and truth, but there's also something called intelligence. And Let's see, were the, was the book of Abraham translated by the time the Lectures on Faith came out? No, the book of Abraham was translated and really started to be published in 1842 in a serial in the Times and Seasons. So it came actually much later. Book of Moses then, maybe? This is in DNC 93, and in DNC 93 we have a notion of intelligence, but not yet of intelligences. 
So we have a notion of eternal intelligence, which is the essence of humankind, but whether it would have been individuated without the later specific revelations given, for instance, in the book of Abraham and in the statements Joseph Smith made in Nauvoo, there's a question whether DNC 93 would have taken the trajectory that we can see it was developed by Joseph Smith. And so we don't have a very express notion of intelligence in DNC 93 that could be called intelligences, but we do have the notion of something that is eternal and uncreated and indeed cannot be created. And so we're already beginning, we're, we're rejecting the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, and we're already beginning to look at something that is independent in the sphere, in its own sphere that seems to have existence even over against God. That is something God can't fully control. And so by 1833, the revelations of Joseph Smith are beginning on the trajectory that will ultimately lead to the Nauvoo idea of intelligences of eternal human beings. That's where I wanted to go next. So, yeah, this idea of things that act for themselves, this intelligence, this, I don't know, I, I think, at least in this idea, it's kind of the elements of the universe. And then, yeah, later, the intelligence, like you said, was actually individuated into terms called intelligences which the way they understood it then was kind of the essence of us. I did a long article in Dialogue on the history of the idea of intelligence and intelligences and the various views that people held. And I think it held, holds up fairly well. But the, the bottom line is, is that at this point, that wasn't very well understood. We can see the, the seed and the beginning of these notions as they get later developed but it really is just the beginning of a trajectory of thought that is more fully realized later. Another development is the idea of the Father and the Son each separately having bodies of flesh and bone, as tangible as man's, Doctrine and Covenants one thirty twenty two says. And I didn't realize this myself, but in conversing with other faiths, I've come to realize we're pretty much the only Christian tradition that teaches that. I, I'm not sure that's true. I think we're the only Christian tradition that teaches that the Father has a body. Here's, here's the anomaly. There are a lot of evangelical Christians and a number of Catholic theologians have observed that Christ has a resurrected body. And so he's embodied in a resurrected body, and it's located somewhere in some time. And so what did he do with his resurrected body becomes the question. And if the Father couldn't become embodied like Christ, and we have two very disparate, unlike beings, and no Christian can adopt that view. We would have to believe that Christ is everything that the Father is, at the very least. And so that actually is the departure point for Joseph Smith and the King Follett Discourse in 1842. And the notion in DNC 130 that God has a, a body of flesh and bone is a much later idea developed in Nauvoo. But already I've mentioned the seed of that idea is already expressed in the Book of Ether and the Book of Mormon, where Christ says that he will take upon himself a body, and we are made after the image of the spirit body and of the body that he will take upon himself. And so the notion of a corporeal Christ, where he already has a spirit body that will later become a mortal body, is already present in the Book of Mormon from the very beginning. David Polson, who is my mentor at BYU and who has written a great deal about this issue, written about the corporality of God. If people are interested in the development of these ideas, I would suggest going to the articles that David has written, one of them in the Harvard Theological Review. He's written a number in other BYU publications, and 
he wrote a really wonderful article in, in a very well-respected philosophical journal, Faith and Philosophy on Divine Corporality. All right, yeah, I just, I just never realized that that was as rare as it is. Yeah, so another interesting development. I'm, I'm, all these are leading up to something, but I just wanted to point them out one by one. And the next development of significance is this idea that there is no such thing as immaterial matter. So you say in the book, he obliterated the dichotomy between matter and spirit. You know, there's been this idea before that there are things of the physical nature and then there are things of spiritual nature and they're completely on different planes of existence. But as I understand it, he's saying that there's no such thing as immaterial matter and spirit is actually matter. Yeah, he's saying, I think that spirit is on a continuum with matter as we know it. I have a hard time understanding that. He says it, I'll just read it like, but it is more fine and pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. We cannot see it. But when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. Why is that important? What is this idea of matter and why why is it important to make that distinction? Well, it's the same as the mind-body problem. The real question is, okay, if we have these minds in our head, how do they interact with the body to make it move or do anything? The same question exists in Christian thought. How does God interact with matter? How can he make matter do anything? There's always this big black box as well. God can do anything so he can do it, but that's no explanation. It's just an assertion. And so when we're talking about God interacting with the material universe, the question is, what is his relation to the material universe? And this is a very important question in cosmology and in all theology. One needs to define God's relationship to the universe and and how he can interact with it in order to move forward with any idea of providence and any idea of theology at all. It kind of is the starting point for, for all natural theologies, which, by the way, Mormonism generally rejects. We don't do natural theology, I would suggest. So, most radically, you say, Joseph Smith later suggests that God has not always occupied the position of God, and that he actually became God. Here's a little quote from the King Follett discourse here. So it says, we suppose that God was God from eternity, meaning here's the old belief that we have had, and I believe, you know, he might have even taught up till this point. He says, I will refute that idea. He was once a man like us, and the Father was once on an earth like us. You have got to learn how to make yourselves God, king and priest, by going from a small capacity to a greater capacity. So, this is pretty famous here. And then you, in the book, kind of give an A and B understanding of that. And I would wonder if you'd go into the A and B understanding, then I have some questions regarding both of them. Yeah, one, one view is that God, there was an eternity of time before which God became God. And he was less than divine forever before that. And then at some moment, he became divine and was divine forever after that moment. The other view is that the Father's existence is like the existence of the Son. The Son was fully divine as Jehovah, or was fully divine as a fully divine being before being born into mortality. He then emptied himself of the divine fullness of divinity to become human, immortal, during which time he was not fully divine. And then he was resurrected after his death and became fully divine again. So in one sense, it is the most Christian of all statements to assert that God became a man and that he dwelt on an earth as a mortal. I mean, what could be more Christian than that? And Christians seem to be fine with it when they assert that of the Son, but somehow asserting that of the Father is unthinkable. What I always wonder is how do they have any notion of the Trinity that they always want to tell me about? That the Father and the Son are the very same kind of thing when the Son can become mortal and the Father can't. That the, the Son 
could take on a body and the Father can't. It's just nonsense theologically to assert such things, really. And even Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas recognized that since the Son could become corporeal, he could take upon himself a body, so could the Father. It's something that is within the power of the Father to do. I mean, if we're going to say that Jesus was resurrected and has his body, I think if you believe that Jesus still has a resurrected body, you're stuck with a theology that recognizes that God is some place and some time, and we have to have a theology that recognizes a corporeal aspect of God where he is located someplace in time, even if the light which is in and through all things in the universe emanates, if you will, from his being to all things. And so I guess I'm just amused that Christians get so upset when we assert that God the Father became mortal and died and was resurrected, and, and they accept that of the Son, but they can't accept it of the Father. I don't know how you have a coherent theology if you if you reject that as a possibility. And that was the very argument Joseph Smith made in the King Follett Discourse. He said that the Son only did what he saw the Father do, quoting the Gospel of John, by the way. And so he's asserting if you're going to accept Jesus as what it is to be a fully divine human being and what it is to be God, you're going to have to accept the same for the Father. I'm going to discuss the A and B just as you put them forth here, and then I have a problem and some ideas on each of them, or both of them. So, Well, let me, let me set a caveat out here. I get into this more fully in the last chapter of Volume 2 and the first chapter of Volume 3, and hint at it somewhat in my Christology at the end of Volume 1. And so, again, this is something that I'm not sure we're ready to discuss responsibly, because we just don't have the background and the basic foundation and building up to make it so that the words that we're using really have meaning that we need to have in order to make sense of what we're saying. Okay. Well, I want to discuss it just a little bit, though. Okay. If we can. You want to be responsible anyway. Okay. Let's do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Just for fun. If it doesn't work out, I'll cut it. All right. So, the A understanding of this is that the Father became divine at a time, like at some point, and he was not divine before that time. And so, my problem with A, at least the most obvious one, it seems, in this understanding, there was no God for a while, or at least no God the Father in the sense that we understand or that there are higher gods than our god that are actually sustaining the universe, and that he is just one of them that became a god at a certain time. In order to develop the first notion, one would have to develop a notion of the Hebrew divine council, and it's really the divine council that governs the universe. The god that has been revealed to us became a member of the divine council at some point in time. So, if one takes the view that God the Father became a God at some first moment, one would have to believe that there already existed a universe with its natural laws already in place, Right. that there are already moral laws and essentially commandments from a higher being already in existence, in obedience to which he became God. And so, it asserts that God is not the most ultimate of the gods, that there may indeed be a power even over and above his, and that the divine council is really God, but the divine council kind of appoints gods to be in this corner of the universe and another god to be in that corner of the universe, kind of analogous to the way the various gods in the Near East were over various countries or various cities. And so that's kind of the notion I think that people have who accept that kind of a view saying that the Father became divine at some first moment, then that's how they read the King Follett Discourse, and so that's why they come up with that kind of a notion. Right. It seems to be in direct contrast with one of the problems Joseph Smith pointed out. And again, I don't know if this actually relates, but he says, if there is something higher than our God, 
I don't know, other gods wouldn't necessarily thwart him, but if they could, we should put our faith in that being rather than this being. We did discuss that in the first chapter a bit as well. Right. The bottom line is that if you take the notion of the lectures on faith, that God has to be the greatest actually existing being. And here's the problem, and it's a problem with omnipotence that we'll get into when we discuss omnipotence. There's an argument to be made that there cannot be two omnipotent beings because then they could thwart each other's wills, not be able to carry out anything. There has to be, if you're omnipotent, you have to be able to carry out your will, and so there can't be another being that could thwart your will. And so we wouldn't properly look to a being whose will could be thwarted by a higher power as God. And the lectures on faith would support that kind of a view and suggest that the notion that God is not ultimate, the ultimate power, is not really an acceptable view. We couldn't really have faith in such a being. We wouldn't worship such a being, and that would be problematic for faith. A possible solution we'd have to expound on, what we're not going to, is that perhaps God is just a class of beings and a community of I don't know if you just say leaders of this specific universes, of all universes, of everything, and that it's just this class of being that you enter at one point, and God is our specific God for our planet, our universe, who knows. Anyway, those are some thoughts on A. So as for B, it's basically saying that the Father was already the Father, but at some time, just like Jesus, he came down and took on a mortal body and had a, a mortal sojourn, just like Jesus did, for a certain amount of time probably died and got resurrected, I guess, and then went back to being God. Is that the correct understanding of B? Well, yeah, except that, again, we're not ready to have this discussion. Right. I, need to dis I need to define things more clearly. But I will make this observation. Joseph Smith clearly held that view. He also believed that the Holy Ghost would one day take upon himself a body, become mortal, and die and be resurrected, just like the Father and the Son had. He taught that at least four times in Nauvoo. And so it's just what divine beings do. It's a part of their progression. They take on other forms that give them additional experiences. What's interesting is that one does not need to have a mortal body in order to be fully divine. But that is true on either A or B. Either view, God doesn't have to have a body, a mortal body, to be fully divine. He doesn't have to have a resurrected body in order to be fully divine. And so if one were to say, well, God has to already be resurrected in order to be God, I would say, well, I'll give you an excellent counterexamples, the Father and the Son. That would bring up a question for me, then. If it's not required to have a body to become fully divine, why then is it required of us to pass through this life and obtain a body to then become one with God and become divine? It isn't required of us. It's a choice that we make. It's simply a means for us to gain further experience and progress further toward our ability to love as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost do, to be perfected in them. And so we will be doing this for all eternity. There is never a point where we can say we have had all possible experiences. There's no such thing as having had all possible experiences. There happens that all possible experiences has the same property as the greatest possible integer. That is, there just ain't such a thing. And so what we're saying is that we will continue to progress and grow from eternity to eternity without end. And so it couldn't possibly be the case that you have to have a completion of experience before you can be God, because that would be a logical impossibility. And one would think that in order to qualify as God, one doesn't have to be able to do the logical impossible. Okay. I just want to lead a little bit more on that question then. If, if the body's not necessary, would that mean that the third part host of heaven that rejected getting a body still have potential, even if they were to never get a body, to become fully divine? 
they've already rejected the opportunity of further growth. And what's essential isn't having a body, it's to be willing to grow through further experiences. And so from that perspective, one would say, you know, they've already turned down the opportunity. On the other hand, I'm of the opinion that one who loves never gives up and always opens the door and always gives further opportunities to grow in love. I can't imagine that our Father in Heaven wouldn't say, if you change your mind, let me know. Right. I had a problem with this one as well, because it seems like, let's say, God as God governing the universe, actual God is a square, him in human form is a circle. So basically he's a square, he becomes a circle, and then he goes back to being a square again, basically. Maybe he has a body now, maybe he didn't before in this point of view. But that doesn't seem to play out, and this is kind of in Jacob's question already, but for us, it doesn't seem like we're doing the same thing, because it says the the other part of this revelation is that not only was God once like a man, but we can become like God because of that. And so, in this view, it doesn't really seem to be that, because it's like, well, God was already God, he just took on a mortal body like Jesus, and then he went back to being God. It's not saying that we are already God, and we're just took on a body for fun, and then we're going to go back to being God. It's saying we're not gods yet, we're trying to progress to be God, but that just doesn't make sense to be the same thing. One is, God is God, takes on a body, goes back to being God, was already God. How did he ever get to be God? If the fact is that we have to go through something like this to be gods, not even earth, just like if we have to go through any kind of progression, then it seems like it's impossible for us to be gods. In large part, this is why I said we don't have the conceptual apparatus in place yet to responsibly discuss this. All right. The question is a good one. It's just premature. However, I will say this. We're the very same kind of beings as the Father and the Son are. In every moment that they could choose to love, they have. In every moment when we could choose to love, we haven't. (laughs) Okay? At least we haven't consistently. And so the only issue is, will we love perfectly so that we are in the unity of relationship that gives rise to the divine properties that we can fully share in or not? They have chosen to do so from all eternity. We haven't made the same choices. The difference is not one of kind. We're the same kind of thing they are. The difference is simply in the kinds of choices that we've made. And so the difference between us isn't explained by saying God is a square and we're a circle. The difference is explained by saying you had the choice to choose that. You just didn't choose the same way. Then can we ever truly become gods, though? Because if it means that you always chose that for from all eternity and we didn't, then we can't ever not be that. In order to be God, you don't have to have chosen it from all eternity. There must be a point, however, at which you are prepared to love fully the way that they do. We're not prepared to do that yet. Then why is it important that God has always been that way? Two reasons, because the scriptures say that they always have been that way. And second, you can't lift something when it's higher than you are. God is lifting us to be what he is. We're not pushing him up to be, you know, from where we are. (laughs) It's not the way it works. God is inviting us to partake of everything that he has and is. We're not suggesting to God that we made him God. So the bottom line is, is in order to have this discussion, we need more conceptual development. But bottom line is, I want to emphasize the difference between what the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are isn't a matter of having a, a resurrected body because the Holy Ghost doesn't have one. It isn't a matter of having been God from all eternity, because there was a time during which each of them was not God. It is a matter of choosing to be in the same relationship that they are. And when we're prepared to have that same kind of relationship, and we choose to have it, then we will share fully in all that they are and that they have. 
And there's no barrier to being the very same thing that they are because ontologically we are the very same kind of beings at base. Okay, quick question before we move on then. Are we to understand that the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost are the only three beings or entities that have chosen this perfect love relationship for all eternity? According to the scriptures, that's the case. According to the scriptures, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost who have been the same unchangeable God from all eternity to all eternity. The scriptures say this numerous times. This isn't a matter of logical necessity. I haven't arrived at this view because I deduced it from some logical proof. I arrived at the view because that's what the scriptures say repeatedly. Okay. All right. And then the next development is that this seems to somewhat contradict that, but it says in an 1844 sermon, Joseph Smith adopted the view that God is a being among other beings who participate in an eternal process of progression from a lower to a higher glory. And that's what will always be true of God, and it will always be true of us to the extent we choose to grow. Okay. God is always progressing. God is as involved in eternal progression as we are. God eternally progresses. I guess that's the next step in Joseph Smith's theology or the revealed theology that we may become like God. And a lot of other religions kind of have this notion, but I'd say it's kind of more of a, what I'd term, soft theosis rather than full theosis. And I don't know if you, you agree with that, but... I discuss theosis in, in Volume 3, and I define theosis and explain it at some length. We're not ready to have that discussion yet. <laughs> All right. Well, the point of this section in this chapter was just to show Joseph Smith's developments on the attributes and understanding of God up to that point. Yeah, but I would agree with your statement. The kind of theosis that, that Christians in general assert is not the same kind that Joseph Smith and Mormons assert. Theosis for standard Christians is a form of sharing as fully as humans can in the divine attributes that can be shared with humans. Okay, For humans, it is sharing fully in all that God has and is. And so there is an ontological distinction to be made. Joseph Smith obliterated the distinctions necessary to make it possible for humans to be conceived as to be the same kind of beings as the gods are. Now, I want to say this very clearly. There's no such thing as a divine person who is all alone a divine person. Divinity is necessarily a relational concept. There is no such thing as a divine person who could be divine by flying out to the universe all alone and starting to create his universe. It is the case that divinity requires love of others. It requires the ability both to love and be loved. It requires, essentially, the kind of unity shared in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. As the Lectures on Faith explained, as the NC88 explains, as the NC93 explains, it is because of this unity that they share in the divine nature and attributes. It is a relational concept. It's an interpersonal concept. It's not the kind of thing that we have in the overblown individualism that defines the way Americans think about themselves and their rights. Just one other question. Are they currently the only gods, or have other intelligences already raised to godhood from other planets? Joseph Smith said a number of other people had already taken their divine station with God. So if he's accurate in that, that would be something that we're not in a position to judge and would have to be revealed. All right. I'm just saying, if there was another planet that God went on, and it wasn't this one, and there's 
possibly a whole host of other people, then that's just something to think about, I guess. Well, we live very large multiverse. All right, and I just want to read two last excerpts from the book, and then we can discuss them a little bit, but this can pretty much wrap it up. This is partly what you just explained already, but Joseph Smith expanded the notion of God to permit that humans, when fully glorified in God's imminent light, possess a fullness of the divine attributes. And because persons as eternal intelligences are uncreated and actually exist from all past eternity, there is no ontological barrier to humans becoming fully what God is himself. As the scripture, DNC 7658 says, Wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God. So, I just want to point that out, that this is a very distinct Mormon teaching, and I'm sure there's like some Eastern churches somewhere that teach this too, but literally because we, you know, most other Christians believe God is completely other, and we are creatures, we are created completely different kinds of beings than God, the revelation of Joseph Smith is just groundbreaking, I'd say, it says we are the same kind as God, and meaning we have the same potential to basically be what God is. We aren't so other that we can never, we'll always be completely separated. God wants us to join in with what he has, and I think that's, I don't know, that makes life a little more worth living, I'd say, than just the traditional Christian notion of like, well, the whole point of this life is so I can just go live in a nice, pretty place where I'll just still be a little creature, never moving on, you know? I have a fourth volume that will be published probably by the end of this year. And in it, I argue that the purpose of creation is so that we can learn to love each other the way the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost love each other. We don't know of anything even possibly comparably greater. It is such a wonderful, valuable state of affairs that it is incommensurate with anything else. That means we can't even compare it to anything else. It is the greatest good that we could possibly even conceive. Sharing in this relationship, in this kind of love, in this kind of interpersonal unity, is such a towering good of superlative greatness that it justifies all of the challenges of human life so that we can learn through our experiences to be in this relationship. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but if you want to say it's what makes life worth living, I would have to say ultimately it is the entire purpose of mortal existence. All right, Jacob, anything, any final thoughts? No, I think I had all the questions I was able to ask, although some of them seem like they're a little, we need to wait a little bit on before we have the proper terminology and understanding of words to discuss them. I, I think we, we discussed them at, at the level we could. All right, the next time, like I said, we'll divide up the section so that Jacob has more of an active role. I just wanted to introduce him here. Eventually, Joseph Smith died, and as he was the founder of Mormonism, obviously, and then after that, we have lots of different people trying to make sense of the current revelations, as well as trying to get their own, such as the Pratts, John Woodstow, and B.H. Roberts, as well as those such as Bruce Armaconkey and current Mormon leaders and things like that. So next time, we'll go into those, and it'll be a fun discussion, I think. All right. I look forward to it. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.